We're arriving at Daniel chapter 11 in our study through the book of Daniel. We have a couple of names that we'll be hearing a lot of today, and I hope I pronounce them right each time. I've been practicing all week, <laughs> but we have a few of those, and it's going to be a lot of detail, and yet there are some things that I think will be so intriguing as we get through these details that I'm hoping you'll get drawn into them as I did, because we're super sleuthing our way into a solid interpretation, and we learn so much about prophetic writings and what that can mean for us, which we'll see further down the line toward the end of today's teaching. It's a fascinating book. I've never delved into it as deeply as I have in the last few weeks, and I hope you're getting as much out of it as I have. Uh, if you don't, I still benefit because I'm really enjoying the study here in Daniel. I'm going to see if you can remember the second half of a fairly well-known saying. It starts out, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. Can you finish that for me there? I'll bet you can. Yes, you got it. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Here's another memorable saying, uh, more memorable perhaps because it's less light. It's, your manuscript is both good and original, but the part that is good is not original. And the part that is original, that's nah, not good. <laughs> that's what you don't want to see on your paper if you're writing a paper for your English composition class. Um, we're going to super sleuth our way into Daniel chapter 11 today, and we've been using these super sleuthing tools for good exegesis, good interpretation. First is the text. We have to see what the text actually says and not read ourselves into it. The context, because there is meaning all around the immediate text. Then the new text, which for us becomes the key to unlock a lot of these Old Testament prophecies, the New Testament. And then parallelism, which we saw last week and the week before a bit, and how that can really make a difference in the pronouns of a passage. And that makes a big difference because we need to know who is who in certain parallel passages. And then chiasmus. And we're going to look at chiasmus quite a bit more today as well. Chiasmus is something that's very prominent in prophetic writing, particularly in Hebrew. But as we can see in Daniel, because it was written in a mirror image style through this chiasmus. It also was written, the first portion of it at least, in the language that would have been used in Babylon, which would have been Aramaic, or at least a Chaldean version of Aramaic. And I don't know how to read Aramaic, so I'm really grateful that we have some good Bible scholars who have diligently put down for us English interpretation. And we have a very accurate interpretation for the most part in most of the translations we have readily available to us today. I still love to be able to see parallels and slight differences in translations, and I urge you to do the same. There are free online resources that allow us to do that so easily these days, because when you come up with a question and you think, well, that just doesn't seem to mesh, sometimes there's a good reason for it. That's when we need to get our magnifying glass out and super sleuth our way into finding out why does that feel like it doesn't fit and there were just a couple of little words that came into that realm this week as I was studying through chapter 11. One time, there was one translation that really got it right, and I'll point that out when we get to it. I love it when you see a plan come together and when we see the New Testament verifying all the Old Testament prophecies. 
And now we even have another layer of verification because we have so many great archaeological finds, particularly in Babylon. So I just have an abundance of excitement about the abundance of evidence that points us to the word that we can get into and trust because it is a trustworthy word from God. A chiasmus is one of the powerful super sleuthing tools that we're using to help us interpret a challenging Old Testament prophetic text like the book of Daniel. I'll show you this little example of chiasmus here. We're learning that a chiasmus, also in American we might say a chiasm, is a literary device used to highlight important events by comparison and contrast. In a chiastic structure, a series of events is presented and then that same series is repeated, but in reverse order. One example of a simple chiasmus, something that's probably memorable for us, is this one from John F. Kennedy. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And you see how that second phrase was flipped around? It was a mirror image of the first, but it adds meaning because of the contrast. We've also learned that in prophetic chiasmus, the second time something is presented, when the chiasm is diagrammed, it has additional detail added to it, which gives us a new flavor, sometimes points us in a different direction, as we've seen in Daniel. But where those two things cross, where they start to go back up the line historically, in our case, in Daniel, where they cross is the center of the X. And it's interesting that chiasmus comes from a Greek word which starts with C-H-I, which is pronounced chi, and that's why chiasm is that way. Chiasmus forms an X. Interestingly, also the first letters in Christ, the anointed one, which is why X sometimes stands for Christ, like at Xmas. All right, now you know. So let's look at a quick Daniel outline in a chiasmus. We see this mirror effect. This is one of several types of outlines that people have come up with to try to help us get an idea of what it looks like visually and I tend to be a visual learner, so this sort of helps me get in mind what it's talking about. We go down in history through certain things, and then we see them repeated, but in reverse order, which is why it's going to feel like we're backing up in time today, because we are. <laughs> this mirror effect helps us identify certain events that need to be highlighted, and because they didn't have highlighters or bold in their word processors back then, they could do something like a chiasm, and God specifically inspired the chiasmus style. I think it's part of his fingerprint, in fact, of the inspired writing in prophetic writing, because every time there's something that crosses and starts heading back in to grab more detail related to the place where it did hit that middle of the X, that is the part that's really highlighted, and we need to pay close attention to that. Um, we also see that there is a difference in kingdoms that are presented here. We saw in Daniel, this is back several weeks ago now, that there was a new kingdom being introduced in addition to the first four kingdoms that were shown to us in the early chapters of Daniel because of the early dreams that were presented, dreams and visions. We knew that there were going to be four earthly kingdoms, but then there was going to be this fourth and unusual kingdom that departed from Rome. It was different from Rome. Those are some of the different details that we're talking about. And that's the one that uh, Mark Elwell was teaching couple of weeks ago about the kingdom of God, and that was the one that was going to be hewn out of a mountain 
And it was a, a great stone that was gonna be cut out of the rock, but not by human hands. Well, this is in reference to the Messiah who comes in the middle of this Roman kingdom, the fourth kingdom. But this kingdom is gonna last forever and it's gonna be different in a lot of different ways. So I'm glad to see how that structure and the teaching from Mark dovetailed in so many ways, as well as some of the things and foreshadowings in David's teaching in our growth encounter at 930 uh, that Steve has been giving us. All these things have really interrelated beautifully. And I love to see that. There's so many threads that continue in this beautiful tapestry that all point to Jesus Christ. Considering the fact that the prophets wrote ahead of history, they're actually sort of a prequel of history. They're writing it before it actually happens. And there is such detail as we're going to see today when we start diving into verses 2 through 20 of Daniel 11. It's unique and it's masterfully outlined for us. I think that is a sign of intelligent design and it's a sign that God is the one who inspired these events. As we arrive at chapter 11, although we're continuing to make our way down through the book as I've mentioned, we're actually making our way back up through history because we're gonna be picking up different details related to some of those other kingdoms that we had looked at that all point to the X. We're gonna to look today specifically to see the prequel to Antiochus IV. So we're gonna be looking at his daddy, Antiochus III quite a bit, and to his older brother. So we're gonna see some of those things about Seleucus as well as Antiochus III. Those are the biggies that you'll, you'll hear a lot about in chapter 11. Uh, some people would think, I just don't believe that Daniel could write all these things in such detail prior to the events taking place. They just don't believe that's, uh, that that's possible. Those would be liberal scholars and uh, God bless them. They're trying to look into this with a, a critical eye and some of the literary criticism has taken us into the depths of critique to the point that we really miss the forest for the trees. They become enamored with their particular super sleuthing techniques, some of which step way outside the boundaries of what we would consider scholarly approaches to interpretation. We're trying to stick very closely to the scholarly approaches so that we can accurately and honestly, intellectually honestly, interpret the passage we're looking at today. I really seek that as we dive into these kinds of studies. And there's some things that let me know that I feel very confident that Daniel wrote this ahead of time. For one thing, he was an eyewitness to Babylonian events and culture. And some of the things that are given to us in Daniel clearly show that this comes from somebody who was very knowledgeable in that Babylonian culture and things that are happening right there as he experienced them. And we know that he lived there in Babylon because he was taken quite young, probably at the age of about 16 from Israel into this captivity. And his ministry spans the entire 70 years of that time of captivity. He was a government official at the highest levels of government under four different kings in that part of the world. That is unique. And it places him in a very unique position to be able to say some things in his writings that nobody else could say and especially to say them in the way he said them, including the fact that he wrote the first part while he was in Babylon for the Chaldonian or, or Chaldean uh, audience, some of the Babylonians that were there. So he would write in Chaldean or Aramaic. And then because the shift in focus goes back toward Israel in the second part, he would be able to write in Hebrew. 
that all clearly points to Daniel as the official writer of this book. That's why he's been so accepted as the writer. And now we have these wonderful extra layers of archaeological writings and cuneiforms that support Daniel's authorship. Because even through some of the things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and some other Qumran community writers, they clearly accepted Daniel as being the writer long before 150 BC. And so there's just all this evidence that piles up for me that becomes unmistakable so that I don't have any problem believing that God could inspire somebody about events that God can foresee that they couldn't. And they can write them down for us and we can trust that these things will be true. And of course they did come true, which is further validation that God knows what he's talking about. Now, this is kind of exciting too. I stumbled across this a couple of weeks ago. I was waiting for this moment in the study to bring it up because it's a large chiasm. It's a chiasm of the history of redemption itself. And it shows you this uh, X shape. If you could do a mirror image of that and have some additional explanation on the right-hand side, then it would look like a gigantic X. But for us, we can see that God creates the heavens and the earth and go all the way down to the very bottom. He creates a new heaven and a new earth. And everywhere in between all of these things are A prime and B prime, C prime, you know, exactly as I've discussed about the chiasm. And look to see where the X crosses. It crosses at the cross where the Lord Jesus is crucified. That's because this chiasm of redemption wants to highlight the most important fact that we should be studying and looking at, and that's the cross of Christ. Everything should start there, and then we can make our way back through history. Then that helps the Old Testament make so much more sense. If we don't start there, we can come to some crazy conclusions about some of these Old Testament prophetic writings, particularly if we're not using our super sleuthing tools correctly. And then we can start to impose our own preferences, and we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that we're looking for facts that lead us to conclusions based on what we see to be obvious in Scripture by using these tools that we've been learning how to use. J. Barton Payne lists in his Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, there are 191 prophecies that he considers referring specifically to Jesus Christ. And I've spoken before about the mathematical impossibility. I don't even think it's an improbability. I think it's an impossibility that even eight of the most specific prophecies in the Old Testament could possibly have come true in the person of one person, that person of Christ. I'm getting my words mixed up, but you know what I'm talking about. It's impossible mathematically for those eight prophecies that were so specific to come true in the person of Jesus Christ. And he did all of those things. The purpose of Daniel 11 is to prepare God's people for two crises in their future. One is an immediate future or near future. That would be Antiochus's persecution. And I use the Chicago method of putting the S after the apostrophe, so that's correct. <laughs> there are other methods that would say you don't need the extra S at the end of that. I digress. Anyway, and then the Antichrist's persecution, which is a far future event. And that's what Daniel 11 is preparing God's people for. Now we're at this side of the cross, so we can look back with clarity and understand that some of this is related to Daniel's time and things that were coming shortly after him. Others relate to us because for us, it becomes our much more near future events 
similar to what they were looking at in Antiochus, who was sort of a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, in fact. In these super sleuthing tools that we're using, we get to dive into a couple of interesting and I think rather exciting things related to our super sleuthing tools today. Understanding how Hebrew was written is very helpful. And fortunately, even though I am not an expert there, we have several really good experts to help us because they've written books on the subject and I've dived into a couple of them. What we understand because of the way it was outlined in the very beginning when it was first written, chapters 10 through 12 of Daniel were actually one continuous passage. There's so much detail there that later on, the 13th century, a lot later on, they, they thought it would be good to divide them up similar, uh, in similar chunks to the ones that we're used to in other chapters. But the way it was originally given to us, we might miss the point if we're dividing it up too much because we might miss where that chiasm starts to reverse and go back up the ladder again. So we need to know what those divisions could look like in order for us to really accurately interpret this passage. Here's the way that this passage, uh, chapters 10 through 12, should be organized based on their original form. You can see chapter 10, Daniel's terrifying vision of a man, which we looked at last week, by the way. And then in uh, Chapter 11, 2 through 35, the kings of the south and the north. That's what we're starting to look at today. So we're going to get through the first 20 verses of that middle section of what you're looking at here. And then starting next week, we're going to start with about uh, verse 21 and catch some of that about the kings of the south and the north. But that also points us and leads into that king who exalts himself which is pointing toward the Antichrist. So the kings of the south and the north are building up to sort of a prequel to Antiochus IV, who is the one who devastated Jerusalem. And then we're going to see the one who exalts himself. That's pointing ahead to a farther future event. And it's important for us, and you can really miss that. And some people have missed it because they have not understood that 10 through 12 was one continuous passage. Very vital for us to be able to pick up on those facts. Now, we're going to see again how history was starting to be shared all through Daniel about the different kingdoms that would follow one after the other. And now we're getting to a point where we're seeing there's the Persian Empire for a while, and that was the power structure in uh, just east of the Mediterranean and all the way across the Levant and over into what we would now think of as Iraq and Iran and Turkey. It was a, it was a large area. And then we're going to see, though, that Greece comes on stronger a little bit later. So that's kind of the era in history that we're looking at as we start to look at this. In verse 2, in fact, let's just dive right into some of the detail there. Three more kings arise in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. That's a little foreshadowing that that's where Persia is headed. And that's where some of the conflict is going to lead, and eventually Greece is going to become the superpower. So let's look at these four kings. We saw them last week, so I'm just going to list them again so you can see them. There's Cambyses, Pseudo-Smerdus, because the actual Smerdus, the brother of the king, was killed. But there was that doppelganger and wannabe. He was sort of the imposter who tried to take the throne for a while, and they literally called him Pseudo-Smerdus. And then there's Darius I. We get to see him at the early part of Daniel. And then Xerxes, 
And Xerxes is the one we learned last week, later took Esther as his queen after he got rid of Vashti because she wouldn't come wearing the crown and display her beauty. Some think that maybe he was wanting her to come and wear only the crown. We're not sure, but she refused and that's why she was banished. And so Esther became the queen. God used her to save the Jewish people from the evil Haman, who was impaled on the very same 40-foot pole that he had erected, so hopefully to get uh, Esther's adopted dad killed. But there was a reversal, and Haman got what was coming to him, and he was killed on the very same impaling device that he had put up right outside the palace. It's kind of an ugly but uh, satisfying story all at the same time, strangely. And then we see this shift of a, uh, a power structure from Persia to Greece, and we see Alexander the Great coming along. Let's look at that starting in verse 3. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. We learned about those four different uh, areas because of the okidoki diadoki, four generals. And then it will not go to his descendants, hmm. nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Interesting. The last kingdom to be conquered was Babylon, which had been weakened under Persian rule. Alexander wanted to rebuild Babylon. However, as was prophesied by Jeremiah, the city of Babylon would never be rebuilt. And sure enough, it wasn't, because God's word is always true. Alexander died quite young in 323 BC, leaving his, and I'm using a quote from the book that I'm looking at this week, his mentally incapacitated half-brother. How's that for a description? Mentally incapacitated half-brother Philip III and his son Alexander IV in charge. They were both under the guidance or guardianship of Perdiccas. Unfortunately, not all, the, all at the same time, but they were all three murdered. So Daniel 11:4 came true. It will not go to his descendants, and it didn't. Then the kingdom was then divided up into parcels among the four generals that we've learned about as the okidoki diadoki. Alexander's empire would be uprooted and given to others came true from 11:4. Two of the four resulting kingdoms, as we have learned already, as we started making our way down through the chiasm of Daniel, were weak, and we don't see much uh, written about them. The losers mean nothing. Another Princess Bride thing there. The other two became strong, and they kept fighting against each other for 150 years. That's what we see predicted in verse 5 and following. Then we start to see some things about the kings of the south and the north, and that's where it starts to become very intriguing today looking at the remainder of the verses that we're looking at. And there's just a few of them, but boy, they're power packed with detail. You'll see the phrase, the king of the north, often in this passage. By looking back through the clear lens of history, we now know that this was the kingdom of Syria. The other ruler, the king of the south, was Ptolemy Lagos, who gained control of Egypt. Walk like an Egyptian. The Ptolemies were the rulers of the final dynasty of 3,000 years of ancient Egypt. That's a lot of the time that we've probably seen on an awful lot of the television specials that we've been watching. Mm -hmm. What does verse 5 mean? The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger 
than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. Hmm. Well, one of the Ptolemy's generals was Seleucus. We sometimes pronounce it Seleucus because of the Seleucid kingdom. We Americanize that, but they would say in their language, Seleucus. And he became stronger than Ptolemy Lagos and returned to Babylon to establish his own kingdom. And that became the kingdom of the north or Syria. Say it with me now. The kingdom of the north is Syria. Syria. Very good. So we've got Syria and Egypt, and that's the central focus for today. The rest of this first section of what we now have as chapter 11 talks about the history of these two powerful kingdoms. And we get an overview of this history in advance so God's people would be prepared for the first major crisis to come. And this becomes, in a sense, a chiastic prequel. Now, there's a, a neat phrase. You can learn to, to spout that off. If somebody says, well, what did you study about today in your Bible lesson at church? You can say, oh, we're just talking about chiastic prequels. And they'll be really impressed. That's the material that God has given us in this wonderfully inspired, poetically written, chiastic designed prequel or history written in advance. That's pretty amazing. So here's the chiastic prequel to Antiochus IV. We're going to see in just these next few minutes the events surrounding uh, Laodice is how it would be pronounced. I keep wanting to say Laodicea because you'll see later in just a few minutes why that becomes important, but it's pronounced Laodice and Bernice in verses six through nine. Interesting ladies with an interesting story. And then we're going to see the career of Antiochus III, daddy to Antiochus IV, and the reign of Seleucus or Seleucus IV, which would be Antiochus IV's brother. Got that? Good for you. It just becomes as clear as mud. But we have, fortunately, a chiastic uh, design for us, which allows us to have repetition with new detail, which is perfect, because for me, I need to have it banged into my brain several times, and that's what we get because of the chiasm. And so it's a good way for us to learn this history because we keep coming back to the same people again, but with more detail. Great for memory. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. Laodice and Bernice. This is interesting here. Starting at verse 6, uh, the first part of verse 6, in fact. After some years, they, meaning the kings of the north and the south, will become allies. Go figure. The daughter of the kings of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power. And he and his power will not last. Very interesting. Because in history, what we see is that after years of hostility between Syria and Egypt, the two kingdoms decided to try some lasting peace. And they thought, okay, we need to put all this strife behind us. We're uh, emptying our treasuries on fighting each other all the time. We really need to try to find some sort of a, a way of coming to a peace agreement. And so let's form an alliance. Well, Antiochus II, grandson of Seleucus I, those are the two family names that continue to go back and forth a lot. Like my dad would be Galen Clark Cawthorn. I'm Galen Clark Cawthorn II. My son is Galen Clark Cawthorn III. There'd be Galen, Clark, and Clarky. You see some of the same names popping up in the family. That's because uh, Seleucus and or Seleucus and Antiochus, same names coming through the same family line often. 
I hope I'm making this as clear as mud. Well, Antiochus II was ruling Syria, the kingdom to the north, during the beginning of the season of this history. Ptolemy II was ruling Egypt to the south. Fortunately, we got both seconds, Antiochus and Ptolemy, both seconds, same generation, north, south. Got it? Well, as was often the case with rulers, one ruler would give a daughter in marriage to another ruler to ensure the alliance between two nations. <laughs> I think, from what I've read, that the idea, which seemed like a good idea at the time, is that you would less likely want to go to war against a country if your own flesh and blood was married to somebody in that country, and that would help solidify these alliances. Didn't always work out that way. Unfortunately, all you have to do is watch any of Shakespeare's plays and <laughs> you understand it doesn't always work out that way, but it seemed like a good, good idea at the time. So in this case, Ptolemy in Egypt gave his daughter Bernice to Antiochus II. Everyone was happy. There was great rejoicing. Yay! Bernice moved to the Seleucid capital city of Antioch. Does that sound like a familiar term. Now, if you write out Antioch and then you put Antiochus next to it, what do you notice? Oh, they look like the same name, but just with an us at the end. <laughs> I keep wanting to pronounce Antiochus Antiochus, and I kept doing so as I first started uh, really learning the book of Daniel. But we'll see that the reason Antioch is Antioch is because it was named for Antiochus. Now it starts to make sense. Well, there was a problem for Antiochus when it came to marrying Bernice. He was already married. But rulers, as we know from history, are very resourceful, and that hasn't stopped them before. So Antiochus decided to put his first wife away. That was the term they used, to put her away, which literally meant to put her away somewhere else, which he did, and boy, did he send her somewhere else. His first wife's name was Laodike, L-A-O-D-I-C-E. I keep wanting to say Laodicea, but it's Laodike. Antiochus sent Laodike and her sons to Ephesus in Asia Minor, now known as Turkey. I have a brother-in-law that served over there for a while as an attache in an embassy in Ankara, Turkey, and he drove right by Ephesus. And he goes, oh, the sign says Ephesus. And he looked it up and he goes, that's the Ephesus. Wow, go figure. And he renamed, not my brother-in-law, but Antiochus renamed the city where she moved in her honor. Now, I'm not sure that renaming a city in your wife's honor is enough to make good after you've sent her away, her and her sons. But he did it anyway, and he tried to name something that would be really honoring to her. So the city where she went, this is where it starts to get kind of cool. All right, the city where she went was formerly known as Diospolis or the city of Zeus. In fact, there's still a temple there, ruins of it at least. But it became Laodicea. Does that sound familiar? Oh, it might if you've read the book of Revelation, because in the seven churches, one of the seven churches was located in Laodicea. So Laodike is the one who moved there. He named the city after her. That's where we get the city name for that that ties into Revelation. Don't you love all the details and how they just keep pointing to more things in scripture to tie one another together? Mm -hmm. I, for one, get excited about it. Well, in those days, it says in 11.6, the second half of 11.6, in those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. 
So you know about the lines of succession, right? You got the bloodlines. And so having a male heir was a big deal. And sometimes it was not a good thing if you had another son, because that could be a threat to the throne, as we've seen in history. Well, the same kind of thing starts to come into play here. When it comes to a son being born, things get dicey. Antiochus grew unsettled with Bernice, where it says she will not retain her power, after she had a son. Because of the lines of succession, having a son was risky, and so Antiochus sent the son to live with his first wife, Laodice, but she poisoned the baby boy to make sure that one of her own sons would retain the right to become a ruler of Assyria. They were pretty despicable that way. And uh, boy, was there ever betrayal, as predicted in verse 6. Bernice, wife number two, and the daughter of the Egyptian ruler, was handed over to Laodike, wife number one, who had Bernice, bum, 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 murdered. Doesn't that sound like the stuff of Shakespearean plays? I mean, wow. And then in verse 7 of chapter 11, there will arise in his place. This is that one I told you about it at the very beginning here when I said the New English translation got it right. Because arise in his place is referring to Bernice's brother, one from a family line. There will arise in his place one from her family line. About that same time, Bernice's father, Ptolemy II in Egypt, passed away. Ptolemy III, who was Bernice's brother, one from her family line, became ruler in Egypt, thus taking his, the previous Egyptian ruler's place. That's why trying to get his and hers and all the pronouns correct is really difficult in Chaldean or Aramaic or Hebrew. Fortunately for us, we have history to help us with that because there are certain things that have to line up with the facts that help us understand which means what. And we have experts in Hebrew that can certainly help us as well. So that's what this one uh, is referring to. And it all falls into place because it was history written in advance. Then 7b, the second half of verse seven, he will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. As you can imagine, Ptolemy III was not real thrilled about his sister's murder. I don't think I would be either. And he attacked the Seleucid realm both by land and by sea. One if by land and two if by sea. And I on the opposite shore shall be ready to ride and spread the alarm to every Seleucid Middlesex village and farm. Mm -hmm. That was the modern, unparaphrased, unpublished version. In Daniel 11, 8 and 9. Let's see what happens as he starts to attack all the way through there, both by land and through the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 8, he will also seize their gods, small g, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt, the plunder of war. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. So takes them back to Egypt. He's going to leave them alone for a while. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. Okay, history written in advance. What do we see happened? Well, who was the son of Laodike? That would be Seleucus II. Aha, he was ruling in the north in Syria during Ptolemy III's rageful attack. He took off back to Asia Minor 
while the army of Ptolemy III plundered his kingdom and carried the spoils of war, the metal images and the valuable uh, artifacts of silver and gold, back to Egypt. It happened. It happened in history, just like Daniel is saying that it was going to happen. There was an unsuccessful counterattack by Seleucus II, as predicted in verse 9. All the details continued to get fleshed out. And remember, this was written before these things took place. Now, we're going to get to the daddy of Antiochus IV. We're looking at Antiochus number three. <laughs> Seleucus II had an older son, Seleucus III, and the younger Antiochus III. We talked about this, a little bit of the biographic information, about a month ago when we were way back in chapter 8, and here we are all the way into chapter 11. We're making our way through there. Both these sons of Seleucus II, the king of the north, were war preparers. The first, Seleucus III, was preparing to mount a great army, and he was uh, gathering a war chest together. But then the second one took over, Antiochus III, and so they were both really warmongers. And they were putting together a huge army and spent an awful lot of the kingdom's treasury doing that, trying to become stronger than the others around them. So the older son, Seleucus III, was planning to attack Egypt, but he was killed in a revolt just four years after becoming, becoming king. Not a terribly long reign. That's when his younger brother was crying crocodile tears. Do you remember that one from before? He was going, wham, wham, oh, my older brother died. I feel so terrible. <laughs> because that meant that he now had access to the throne, except for that one pesky nephew, but he got him out of the way pretty quickly too. So Antiochus III was able to ascend the throne. He was that shorter horn that was going to be equal and eventually surpass the other horn. You probably are remembering some of that now, right? Because we're in a chiastic presentation. Well, we can see that both Countries, Syria and Egypt, continued to battle constantly for about 36 years as Antiochus III continued to rule. But as they were doing that, many opposed the king of the south, which means that Egypt, because it was so powerful, was getting pounced upon by lots of different countries and not just by Syria. It was a real terrible time in history, especially for Egypt. Now, we, we need to ask this question. Who does this phrase, your own people, refer to? Well, this is writing to Daniel. This is his revelation. So that would be Daniel's own people, which means they're talking about the Jews here, your own people. There was a revolt by a rebellious group of Jewish men in the land of Israel. They decided it was going to be a smart idea to throw their allegiance, their support behind Antiochus, hoping to gain freedom from Egypt and a better life for Israel. That plan didn't work out real great because it was Antiochus III's son who would eventually bring devastation to Jerusalem and desecration to the temple of God, as we looked at briefly already. So I think this is a really highly appropriate time for me to point out that there are other times in Israel's history when Israel tried to do things man's way instead of putting God first and doing things God's way. It just didn't go well for them every time they did that. Hey, we want a king like that country over there. Ah, I don't think you want that. God should be your king. We've talked about this. <laughs> it can be awfully tempting 
to throw our allegiance in with human leaders, thinking that by doing so, by aligning ourselves with human power and influence, it will result in better condition for God's people. But we've seen throughout Israel's history, and unfortunately, even in our nation's brief history, numerous examples about how aligning ourselves with human power brokers, even though they may talk a good talk, and they may say, oh, but my platform stands for what you guys believe in. You can trust me. I'm a politician. <laughs> it just didn't go well for them. Okay, enough of that aside. We just need to continue to remember that we really need to put God first because he should be our ultimate king because we're in the kingdom of God. So we see a, a word that comes up that starts to sound really familiar from our contemporary culture and our 11 o'clock news. In verses 15 and 16, back when the Egyptian army sought to regain control of Israel, there's this place called Gaza. Sound familiar? It became the place of one of the great battles in Antiochus III's career, and it has been a contentious strip of land ever since. Even though Egypt had controlled Israel for more than a century, I mean, wow, Antiochus and his army actually regained control over that area. That was in 198 BC. Can you see how we're creeping closer and closer in history toward that Roman Empire and eventually that stone that was cut but not by human hand that would be the one that would crush everyone else and that would be the kingdom of god well listen to how this is described this uh, gaza strip in israel is described in daniel in verse 15. then the king of the north antiochus i don't know why he would have an accent like that but <laughs> he will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city that could have taken ages joy and i saw masada and we saw a depiction in a model of how much earth would need to be moved in because that was a natural mesa, a mountain with a flat top that was way up above the Dead Sea area. And on the western side, it wasn't quite as steep, but it was still quite steep. But because that was the last holdout in that particular battle, the uh, leader said, I don't care how long it takes. We're getting these people out of there. We're not going to be the laughing stock by this small paltry group of Jews in there. We got to get up there. It took them three years to build an earthen ramp until they could finally storm the joint. And that's what they're talking about here in this warfare. That's the style of warfare. He said, King of the North, going to build siege ramps, going to capture the fortified city. And looking at Israel, especially at Jerusalem, the original walls that were around there, there was a natural uh, geography that meant that there were natural depressions in the land and some very deep chasms surrounding it. So it was already hard to get to. And then you build a wall on top of that too. It was hard to get to. It was really fortified. So they had to build some huge earthen ramps to get up there. And then the forces of the south, that would be Ptolemy in Egypt, will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader, Antiochus, will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, which was another term for Israel. Now, here's another good news, bad news part of this epic story. You might say, oh, well, that's good, right? I mean, it's good that Egypt was pushed out and that someone else is gaining control over the strip in Israel. I mean, especially considering that there was a faction of Jews fighting to help make that happen. That's a good thing, right? But you don't have to read much further to be able to say, no, that's really not a good thing. 
Just look at the rest of verse 16. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and he will have the power to destroy it. Oh, yeah, that's bad because that means Antiochus IV is coming after Antiochus III, and we know, we know what happens when he comes on the scene. So here's another, yet another alliance in marriage that we see coming to, into play here. As we saw the first time, didn't end well. But let's try it again. <laughs> after 36 years of conflict and after never successfully defeating Egypt, Antiochus decides it's time for diplomacy, or at least the kind of man manipulative diplomacy that happens in politics when they think, I'm going to make them think that everything's coming together nicely and it's for their benefit. <laughs> this is the kind of diplomacy that involves giving a daughter in marriage to another king, hoping that this daughter will influence her new royal husband to support her daddy's ambitions back home. Verse 17, he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Uh, the king of Egypt in this diplomatic alliance with, was Ptolemy V. The daughter of Antiochus had a name that may sound familiar. Her name was Cleopatra. This Cleopatra became the first Egyptian to bear that name, even though this Cleopatra was not originally from Egypt. But as we see in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11, Antiochus's plans fell through because her daughter gave her loyalty to her Egyptian husband instead of remaining loyal to daddy back home. Hmm. All the prophecies came true. And then we have a shift toward Roman dominance. This is where we start to see again on that line of succession of different empires moving toward that fourth empire. This would be the Roman Empire. Antiochus turned his attention to the coastlands. That would be along the northern coast of the Mediterranean and all the way across to the right on your map, if you're looking at the map, the east, toward the western side of Israel. He's getting really cheeky by this point, and he's feeling pretty pretty heady about his uh, military dominance. And so he, he says, okay, I'm going to turn my attention toward all the coastlands. And it says, uh, but his insolence was going to get turned back on him. And it would be by Rome. Antiochus hadn't counted on just how strong the Roman army was going to be, even though he won quite a few battles. He ran into some serious resistance by this rising superpower called Rome. And by the way, Rome was that fourth kingdom mentioned in Daniel 2, the one that was as strong as iron, breaking to pieces and shattering all things. That was in 240. The Roman armies did a lot of damage to Antiochus's troops at the Battle of Thermopylae and then completely overwhelmed him at Magnesia. Antiochus had to surrender his navy, his elephants. Yes, there were elephants and most of his land in Asia Minor. He also had to pay a lot of tribute money to Rome for the next 12 years. I mean, that's pretty humiliating to have to pay, to pay huge tribute money for 12 solid years, but it's just rubbing salt into the wounds to have to give up your elephants. Can I get an amen? Here's where we see the detail that ends up being really important to Israel. This is part of the prequel that shows up because of the chiastic sequence of events. Are you ready for this? 
Rome took hostages in these battles. The Roman commander took 20 young men hostages, and one of them was Antiochus IV. Bum, bum, bum. With his kingdom shrinking and his treasury depleted, Antiochus the Great, meaning A3, made his eldest son, Seleucus IV, his co-regent. We talked about that earlier in the chiasmus. And then he went on, he meaning A3, went on to the eastern regions of his kingdom on a sort of fundraising tour, which basically meant that he was going to beg, borrow, and steal to replace money for the treasury because they were broke. And then we start to see the end of Antiochus III, predicted in Daniel 11, especially verse 19. When Antiochus III attempted to rob the temple treasury, beg, borrow, and steal, this is literally stealing, in a smaller town in the east, guards at the temple attacked him and killed him. He was, as predicted in verse 19, was seen no more. And that, my friends, was the end of the father to Antiochus IV, also known as A3. Then we see the end of Seleucus IV. You see how the chiasm is moving all the way backwards there because the Seleucus IV was actually the older brother, but we're moving back through history again. There's all these little revisits to the prequel. So we continue to just cement these details in our minds. Then we see the detail in verse 20 about the eldest son who had been make, made co-regent. His, meaning uh, Antiochus III's successor, who was Seleucus IV, will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor, meaning they were broke, they had to beg, borrow, and steal. Seleucus IV took over after his father's 36-year reign, as we see in history, and Seleucus only ruled for 11 more years, not terribly lengthy. And Seleucus's chief minister conspired against him and killed him. He was, as the prophecy indicated, destroyed, but not in anger and not in battle. Here we have yet another example of an inside job. It was another A2 Brute moment, and I said Brute correctly this time, instead of Americanizing it and saying Brutus, A2 Brutus, like I did last week. <laughs> we see in just a few verses in Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 20, how God's story was written in advance with so many details that became crystal clear after they had come to fruition. So what is that significance to us? Well, it is very significant. For one thing, we can see that God is sovereign. He continues to be sovereign when it comes to leaders of nations, and that means all nations. There's not a human leader on earth who doesn't have a position of power, but that God willed it or allowed it. Whether it's perfect will or permissive will, doesn't really matter. God's in control. He's sovereign. We can debate that permissive and perfect will till we're blue in the face, but the Bible just says, hey, God's in charge. And so if there's somebody there, it's because God is working all things together for his purposes. That's what Jesus understood in John chapter 19 when he was standing before Pilate in one of his mock trials. Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? And Jesus says, don't you realize you wouldn't have this power if it hadn't been granted unto you? 
Jesus knew where the power came from. And he's saying, there's a power far greater than you are, Pilate. And you wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't have the authority that you have if it hadn't been given to you by somebody else. So everything that's happening right here, it's all because God's allowing it to happen. It's a part of his purpose. And then that's why Paul could say in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except by God's appointment and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Hmm. You think this may have some practical application in 2021? Daniel's experience and the fulfilled prophecies in his book demonstrate for us what can happen when somebody and some bodies, known as the church, can live faithfully for God while at the same time respecting authorities on earth, even when those authorities don't do what you wish they would do. Wow, this really puts what we believe in and how we're going to behave as Christians to the test. We learn from our study in Daniel how we could and should use every godly and just and legal means to challenge and change government authority when necessary. We should, but we must do so with grace because we're reflecting God's character to a watching world. We see in Daniel, a man who was completely sold out to God and who served in the highest levels of human secular government, even in a culture not his own. That's pretty amazing. And we see how God worked his purposes through Daniel's obedience and when necessary, through his faithfulness to God, Daniel broke a decree because it drew a line and he was not going to pray to a human leader as was dictated by Nebuchadnezzar. So he threw the lattices open on his window where he prayed every day, three times a day, facing to the west toward Jerusalem. And he prayed openly, even though that was an open defiance to the king's law. There are times when we need to be openly defiant if people say, no, you can't worship this God that way. Or no, you can't proclaim that God's word is true. Yes, we should be openly defiant about that because we have God on our side. Other things, and we've debated a lot about some of these other things in this last 14 months, we have to determine, is this really where we're going to draw the line? Or is this a place where we can obey the human government and try in the best ways possible to change that government and still be gracious because there is a watching world? We've been put to the test as a church in the last 14 months. And I'm praying that we'll continue to dig into God's word and be the kind of people who can represent God faithfully and stand where we need to stand in the right way so that a watching world can see us and tell that we really stand for God and God's glory is reflected in us. We also learn that these fulfilled prophecies prepare us to live faithfully, even when current events become really difficult for God's people. And there have been some difficulties for God's people. And yet, I can look at people who come from other countries or who write on their walls on social media from other countries. And I realize, oh boy, I'm a whiner. And sometimes my little paltry problems seem really small in comparison to other people who really understand what real persecution is really all about. But when things do become difficult for God's people, we need to live faithfully. 
And we need to live in such a way that God will be glorified through us as we remain patient and wait upon him. I really have struggled in this last few weeks waiting for the school to open back up to us. This is where I have personally struggled. And I keep diving back into God's word. And fortunately, in a study like this one, God has been speaking to my heart and saying, hang in there, brother. <laughs> You're going to get there. You're going to get back together. You will be able to worship together. I promise you're going to get there, but just hang in there. I'm still orchestrating events, even those events that you can't see, but I can see them hang in there. That's the word that I feel I've been getting through Daniel. And I want to pass that along to you too. And I know that, I know that it gets to be just excruciating because one more week goes by and we don't hear back again. We waited 14 months. Can you imagine being Daniel and waiting 70 years in exile for some of the things to come to fruition? Folks, we ain't seen nothing compared to Daniel. I think we can hang in there for a couple more weeks. So let's bolster one another's courage. Let's keep being faithful. And let's, let's look forward to what God has in store for us because it's going to be good. I promise. It's hard for us to imagine living back at the time when Daniel lived or back at the time when Antiochus II divorced his wife Laodice and married Bernice. But for some of the people who knew the prophecies, they may have been thinking, oh, wait a minute, could this refer to some of the stuff that we've been reading about? Hmm. They didn't see clearly what was happening. We can see very clearly because we have the clear lens of history. But because of that, God has been cementing for us by looking back through the clear lens of history that the fulfilled prophecies that are still yet to come, they will be fulfilled. I should say those prophecies that are yet to come, not the fulfilled, because they're not fulfilled yet. The prophecies that we're looking forward to, especially the one where Jesus comes back for his eternal reign and to restore the heavens and the earth, for those who are clinging to him, the rightful joint heirs with Jesus Christ, there's so much to look forward to, so much. So we've got to stay strong and we have to continue to live faithfully even though things look bleak at times for us as a church. And then finally, these fulfilled prophecies show us that we must, must, must continue abiding in the word. And you're to be commended because you're listening to the teaching of the word right now. Some of you were listening to the teaching of the word at 930 in our growth encounter. Some of you are still involved in Bible studies through Zoom meetings, even if you haven't been able to start meeting personally together yet. And that's going to be changing soon as well, because we're opening back up more and more. But we need to be people of the word, because that's what keeps giving us the encouragement to stay in it. I was really discouraged a couple of days ago, but I kept slogging through and digging out the truths that God had for me in this book, and God encouraged me from it. And we need to regularly be in God's word because that's where we restore our strength. That's where God lifts us up on eagle's wings by being in the word. It's really good to be reminded through the book of Daniel that we can retain a sense of urgency that should motivate us to live faithfully. I think there's a good reason why he doesn't give us spelling everything out in such detail that we know specifically when he's coming back again. And I think it's good for us to know that so many prophecies have already been fulfilled because it could be any time. I mean, it really could. I can honestly say, and I'm, I'm not trying to be dramatic about saying it, it could come tomorrow. I mean, it really could. We just don't know. God's in control of that. But we ought to live with an urgency 
that should say, what are we about? And what have we allowed ourselves to get so wrapped up in that we forget what we should be about? We should be going into all the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, being disciples, sharing Christ with other people. We should be people of the gospel, people of reach, that vision that should be ours. And we ought to do it with an urgency to know that there's so many people who could be left behind if God should decide to come back tomorrow. Are we urgent about that? I want to end with these words from C.S. Lewis. The paragraph you have is only a portion of what I'm going to read. He really got it right about the fact that we need to be people who are ready. No one who is looking at world history could find in it a steady up gradient in progress for the better. There is often progress within a given field over a limited period, a school of pottery or painting or maybe a moral effort in a particular direction may continuously improve over a number of years. If this process could spread to all departments of life and continue indefinitely, there would be progress of the sort our fathers may have believed in. But it never seems to do so. Either it is interrupted or else it decays. Isn't that what we've been seeing in the book of Daniel? The idea which here shuts out the second coming from our minds, the idea of the world slowly ripening to perfection is a myth, not a generalization from experience. And it is a myth which distracts us from our real duties and our real interest. Our real duties should be to share the gospel. Our real duty should be to love people the way God loved us, to be gracious to people, even the outsiders, even the outcasts, the way Christ hung out with the outcasts to show them what the kingdom of God was really like. We should be showing people that we're willing to lay down our rights so that they can have an opportunity to hear a clearly proclaimed gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, backed up by God's love, shared through our love. That's what we should be about. And we dare not get pulled away into the myth that somehow technology will make the world better, that we're just blank slates, and that we can all continue to ascend up the ladder towards some utopian idea of a perfect society where everybody's giving equally to everybody else. The Bible just doesn't teach that. And it's not borne out through history. So what should we be doing? Live faithfully and be ready and keep loving people the way God loves us. Let's pray. Father, the book of Daniel is so challenging. I didn't know what I was even biting off when I decided to start teaching through this book. And yet it's so powerful and you have so many good instructions for us, things that are speaking right into our lives today, even though these things took place so long ago. Thank you that you're showing us that we can trust your word because you trusted your prophets with your words and everything they prophesied came incredibly true in great detail. And we see that and that's what gives us hope to continue to live faithfully. And we want to do that and I pray we'll do that and I pray these things for Jesus' sake and in his name.